Welcome to Weird Stories, a series of readings for the Weird Studies podcast. Hello, Weird Studies listeners. This is Phil. So I got up this morning and pulled my copy of William James' writings, 1902 to 1910, wonderful Library of America volume of his collected works, pulled that off the shelf and was actually looking for a different essay. Uh, but en route to looking that one up, I found the essay on some mental effects of the earthquake, which is an essay that I'd seen in the table of contents any number of times, but never really thought to look at. I mean, I've never been through an earthquake. I live in the Midwest, so surely the business of living through an earthquake is somewhat remote from my day-to-day -day life. But, of course, all of our day-to-day -day lives have been shaken up to some very large extent, and it occurred to me that James' essay on the San Francisco earthquake might actually be somewhat applicable to our present circumstances. So I started reading it, and it's not a long essay, so it didn't take me very long to get to the end of it, and it strikes me as very, very relevant to our present situation. I mean, of course, earthquakes and pandemics are rather different. Earthquakes are more localized, and the kind of response that each emergency calls for is rather different. But I'm hoping that as you listen to this, that you get something from it. I think the main thing that James focuses on here is the power of courage and collective action and the degree to which those qualities are elicited by times of great distress. Now, I think one of the peculiar difficulties or challenges of the coronavirus epidemic is that we are not called upon to rush out into the street and help our brothers and sisters to pull objects from burning buildings to set up temporary emergency shelters. It's not that kind of a disaster. Instead, we are in the position of isolation and perennial watchfulness. And as James points out towards the end of this essay, it is much harder to be a watcher than it is to be a doer. And perhaps that's one of the challenges of the coronavirus epidemic that we're going to have to learn how to live with in the coming days. But I think that what James perceives about the collective and improvised spontaneous response to the San Francisco earthquake does tell us something about the kind of inner resources that we can draw upon in handling this crisis. I, at least, took a certain amount of encouragement from it, and I hope you do as well. As you can imagine, social distancing is somewhat affecting the way we are recording material for Weird Studies, so in the days ahead, get used to hearing JF's daughters or the sound of my son playing Steely Dan in the room next door. Um, it will be part of the peculiar charm of the episodes that we record in the days that come, and perhaps... In the future, as new listeners come to the show and start working their way through the back catalog, they'll come to these recordings and think, aha, a quaint reminder of yesteryear, the time when we were all shut up in our homes learning how to deal with the coronavirus. Hmm. Man, it was tough there at first, but we figured it out. When I departed from Harvard for Stanford University last December, Almost the last goodbye I got was that of my old California friend, B. 
I hope they'll give you a touch of earthquake while you're there so that you may also become acquainted with that Californian institution. Accordingly, when, lying awake at about half-past five on the morning of April 18th in my little flat on the campus of Stanford, I felt the bed begin to waggle, my first consciousness was one of gleeful recognition of the nature of the movement. By Jove, I said to myself, here's B's old earthquake after all. And then, as it went crescendo, and a jolly good one it is too, I said. Sitting up involuntarily and taking a kneeling position, I was thrown down on my face as it went fortior, shaking the room exactly as a terrier shakes a rat. Then everything that was on anything else slid off to the floor, overwent the bureau and chiffonnier with a crash, and, as the fortissimo was reached, plaster cracked, an awful roaring noise seemed to fill the outer air, and in an instant all was still again, save the soft babble of human voices from far and near that soon began to make itself heard, as the inhabitants in costumes negligé, in various degrees, sought the greater safety of the street and yielded to the passionate desire for sympathetic communication. The thing was over, as I understood the Lick Observatory to have declared, in 48 seconds. To me, it felt as if about that length of time, although I've heard others say that it seemed to them longer. In my case, sensation and emotion were so strong that little thought and no reflection or volition were possible in the short time consumed by the phenomenon. The emotion consisted wholly of glee and admiration, glee at the vividness which such an abstract idea or verbal term as earthquake could put on when translated into sensible reality and verified concretely and admiration at the way in which the frail little wooden house could hold itself together in spite of such a shaking. I felt no trace whatever of fear. It was pure delight and welcome. Go it, I almost cried aloud, and go it stronger. I ran to my wife's room and found that she, although awakened from sound sleep, had felt no fear either. Of all the persons whom I later interrogated, very few had felt any fear while the shaking lasted, although many had had a turn, as they realized their narrow escapes from bookcases or bricks from chimney breasts falling on their beds and pillows an instant after they had left them. As soon as I could think, I discerned retrospectively certain peculiar ways in which my consciousness had taken in the phenomenon. These ways were quite spontaneous, and so to speak, inevitable and irresistible. First, I personified the earthquake as a permanent individual entity. It was the earthquake of my friend B's augury, which had been lying low and holding itself back during all the intervening months, in order, on that lustrous April morning, to invade my room and energize the more intensely and triumphantly. It came, moreover, directly to me. It stole in behind my back, and once inside the room, had me all to itself, and could manifest itself convincingly. Animus and intent were never more present in any human action, nor did any human activity ever more definitely point back to a living agent as its source and origin. All whom I consulted on the point agreed as to this feature in their experience. It expressed intention. It was vicious. It was bent on destruction. It wanted to show its power, or want not. To me, it wanted simply to manifest the full meaning of its name— but what was this it? To some, apparently, a vague demonic power. To me, an individualized being. Bees earthquake, namely. 
One informant interpreted it as the end of the world and the beginning of the final judgment. This was a lady in a San Francisco hotel who did not think of its being an earthquake till after she got into the street and someone had explained it to her. She told me that the theological interpretation had kept fear from her mind and made her take the shaking calmly. For science, when the tensions in the Earth's crust reached the breaking point and strata fall into an altered equilibrium, earthquake is simply the collective name of all the cracks and shakings and disturbances that happen. They are the earthquake. But for me, the earthquake was the cause of the disturbances, and the perception of it as a living agent was irresistible. It had an overpowering, dramatic convincingness. I realize now better than ever how inevitable were men's earlier mythologic versions of such catastrophes, and how artificial and against the grain of our spontaneous perceiving are the later habits into which science educates us. It was simply impossible for untutored men to take earthquakes into their minds as anything but supernatural warnings or retributions. A good instance of the way in which the tremendousness of a catastrophe may banish fear was given me by a Stanford student. He was in the fourth story of Encina Hall, an immense stone dormitory building. Awakened from sleep, he recognized what the disturbance was and sprang from the bed, but was thrown off his feet in a moment while his books and furniture fell round him. Then, with an awful, sinister, grinding roar, everything gave way, and with chimneys, floor beams, walls, and all, he descended through the three lower stories of the building into the basement. This is my end. This is my death, he felt. But all the while, no trace of fear. The experience was too overwhelming for anything but passive surrender to it. Certain heavy chimneys had fallen in, carrying the whole center of the building with them. Arrived at the bottom, he found himself with rafters and debris around him, but not pinned in or crushed. He saw daylight and crept toward it through the obstacles. Then, realizing that he was in his nightgown and feeling no pain anywhere, his first thought was to get back to his room and find some more presentable clothing. The stairways at Encina Hall are at the ends of the building. He made his way to one of them and went up the four flights, only to find his room no longer extant. Then he noticed pain in his feet, which had been injured, and came down the stairs with difficulty. When he talked with me ten days later, he had been in hospital a week, was very thin and pale, and went on crutches, and was dressed in borrowed clothing. So much for Stanford, where all our experiences seem to have been very similar. Nearly all our chimneys went down, some of them disintegrating from top to bottom. Parlor floors were covered with bricks. Plaster strewed the floors. Furniture was everywhere upset and dislocated. But the wooden dwellings sprang back to their original position, and in house after house, not a window stuck or a door scraped at top or bottom. Wood architecture was triumphant. Everybody was excited, but the excitement at first, at any rate, seemed to be almost joyous. Here, at last, was a real earthquake after so many years of harmless waggle. Above all, there was an irresistible desire to talk about it and exchange experiences. Most people slept outdoors for several subsequent nights, partly to be safer in case of a recurrence, but also to work off their emotion and get the full unusualness out of their experience. The vocal babble of early waking girls and boys from the gardens of the campus, mingling with the bird songs and the exquisite weather, was, for three or four days, a delightful sunrise phenomenon. 
Now turn to San Francisco, 35 miles distant, from which an automobile ere long brought us the dire news of a city in ruins, with fires beginning at various points and the water supply interrupted. I was fortunate enough to board the only train of cars, a very small one, that got up to the city, fortunate enough also to escape in the evening by the only train that left it. This gave me and my valiant feminine escort some four hours of observation. My business is with subjective phenomena, exclusively, so I will say nothing of the material ruin that greeted us on every hand. The daily papers and the weekly journals have done full justice to that topic. By midday, when we reached the city, the pall of smoke was vast, and the dynamite detonations had begun. But the troops, the police, and the firemen seemed to have established order. Dangerous neighborhoods were roped off everywhere and picketed, saloons closed, vehicles impressed, and everyone at work who could work. It was indeed a strange sight to see an entire population in the streets, busy as ants on an uncovered anthill, scurrying to save their eggs and larvae. Every horse and everything on wheels in the city, from hucksters' wagons to automobiles, was being loaded with what effects could be scraped together from houses which the advancing flames were threatening. The sidewalks were covered with well-dressed men and women, carrying baskets, bundles, valises, or dragging trunks to spots of greater temporary safety, soon to be dragged farther as the fire kept spreading. In the safer quarters, every doorstep was covered with the dwelling's tenants, sitting surrounded by their more indispensable chattels, and ready to flee at a minute's notice. I think every one must have fasted on that day, for I saw no one eating— there was no appearance of general dismay and little of chatter or of incoordinated excitement. Every one seemed doggedly bent on achieving the job which he had set himself to perform, and the faces, although somewhat tense and set and grave, were inexpressive of emotion. I noticed only three persons overcome, two Italian women, very poor, embracing an aged fellow countrywoman and all weeping. Physical fatigue and seriousness were the only inner states that one could read on countenances. With lights forbidden in the houses and the streets lighted only by the conflagration, it was apprehended that the criminals of San Francisco would hold high carnival on the ensuing night. But whether they feared the disciplinary methods of the United States troops, who were visible everywhere, or whether they were themselves solemnized by the immensity of the disaster, they lay low and did not manifest either then or subsequently. The only very discreditable thing to human nature that occurred was later, when hundreds of lazy bummers found that they could keep camping in the parks and make alimentary storage batteries of their stomachs, even in some cases getting enough of the free rations in their huts or tents to last them well into the summer. The charm of pauperized vagabondage seems all along to have been Satan's most serious bait to human nature. There was theft from the outset, but confined, I believe, to petty pilfering. Cash in hand was the only money, and millionaires and their families were no better off in this respect than anyone. Whoever got a vehicle could have the use of it, but the richest often went without, and spent the first two nights on rugs on the bare ground, with nothing but what their own arms had rescued. Fortunately, those nights were dry and comparatively warm, and Californians are accustomed to camping conditions in the summer, so suffering from exposure was less great than it would have been elsewhere. By the fourth night, which was rainy, tents and huts had brought most campers under cover. I went through the city again eight days later. The fire was out, and about a quarter of the area stood unconsumed. Intact skyscrapers dominated the smoking level majestically and superbly, they and a few walls that had survived the overthrow. 
Thus has the courage of our architects and builders received triumphant vindication. The inert elements of the population had mostly got away, and those that remained seemed what Mr. H.G. Wells calls efficients. Sheds were already going up as temporary starting points of business. Everyone looked cheerful, in spite of the awful discontinuity of past and future, with every familiar association with material things dissevered, and the discipline and order were practically perfect. As these notes of mine must be short, I had better turn to my more generalized reflections. Two things, in retrospect, strike me especially, and are the most emphatic of all my impressions. Both are reassuring as to human nature. The first of these was the rapidity of the improvisation of order out of chaos. It is clear that just as in every thousand human beings there will be statistically so many artists, so many athletes, so many thinkers, and so many potentially good soldiers, so there will be so many potential organizers in times of emergency. In point of fact, not only in the great city, but in the outlying towns, these natural order makers, whether amateurs or officials, came to the front immediately. There seemed to be no possibility which there was not someone there to think of, or which, within twenty-four hours, was not in some way provided for. A good illustration is this. Mr. Keith is the great landscape painter of the Pacific Slope, and his pictures which are many, are artistically and pecuniarily precious. Two citizens, lovers of his work, early in the day diverted their attention from all other interests, their own private ones included, and made it their duty to visit every place which they knew to contain a Keith painting. They cut them from their frames, rolled them up, and in this way got all the more important ones into a place of safety. When they then sought Mr. Keith to convey the joyous news to him, they found him still in his studio, which was remote from the fire, beginning a new painting. Having given up his previous work for lost, he had resolved to lose no time in making what amends he could for the disaster. The completeness of organization at Palo Alto, a town of 10,000 inhabitants close to Stanford University, was almost comical. People feared exodus on a large scale of the rowdy elements of San Francisco. In point of fact, very few refugees came to Palo Alto. But within 24 hours, rations, clothing, hospital, quarantine, disinfection, washing, police, military, quarters in camp and in houses, printed information, employment, all were provided for under the care of so many volunteer committees. Much of this readiness was American, much of it Californian, but I believe that every country in a similar crisis would have displayed it in a way to astonish the spectators. Like soldiering, it lies always latent in human nature. The second thing that struck me was the universal equanimity. We soon got letters from the East ringing with anxiety and pathos, but I now know fully what I have always believed, that the pathetic way of viewing great disasters belongs rather to the point of view of people at a distance than to the immediate victims. I heard not a single really pathetic or sentimental word in California expressed by anyone. The terms awful, dreadful, fell often enough from people's lips, but always with a sort of abstract meaning, and with a face that seemed to admire the vastness of the catastrophe as much as it bewailed its cuttingness. When talk was not directly practical, I might almost say that it expressed, at any rate in the nine days I was there, a tendency more toward nervous excitement than toward grief. The hearts concealed private bitterness enough, no doubt, but the tongues disdained to dwell on the misfortunes of self when almost everybody one spoke to had suffered equally. 
Surely the cutting edge of all our usual misfortunes comes from their character of loneliness. We lose our health, our wife or children die, our house burns down, or our money is made way with, and the world goes on rejoicing, leaving us on one side and counting us out from all its business. In California, everyone, to some degree, was suffering, and one's private miseries were merged in the vast general sum of privation and in the all-absorbing practical problem of general recuperation. The cheerfulness, or, at any rate, the steadfastness of tone, was universal. Not a single whine or plaintive word did I hear from the hundred losers whom I spoke to. Instead of that, there was a temper of helpfulness beyond the counting. It is easy to glorify this as something characteristically American or especially Californian. Californian education has, of course, made the thought of all possible recuperations easy. In an exhausted country with no marginal resources, the outlook on the future would be much darker. But I like to think that what I write of is a normal and universal trait of human nature. In our drawing rooms and offices, we wonder how people ever do go through battles, sieges, and shipwrecks. We quiver and sicken in imagination and think those heroes superhuman. Physical pain, whether suffered alone or in company, is always more or less unnerving and intolerable. But mental pathos and anguish, I fancy, are usually effects of distance. At the place of action, where all are concerned together, healthy animal insensibility and heartiness take their place. At San Francisco, the need will continue to be awful, and there will doubtless be a crop of nervous wrecks before the weeks and months are over, but meanwhile, the commonest men, simply because they are men, will go on, singly and collectively, showing this admirable fortitude of temper. Temper.